The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. You know, there's probably no more exciting hero in the whole Bible than King David. For the last several weeks, and even going back as far as uh, June in our church, we have been looking at the lives uh, of, of Saul and David and a little bit of Solomon, and we've kind of been bouncing around in Samuel and Chronicles. But today we are going to look at the last chapter in the life of King David. We're going to look at the end of his life. But before we do that, I think it would be important for us to sort of do a quick review of his life. If this were a sports uh, highlight reel, these would be the top plays, the top highlights of David's life. And it's something like this. He was a shepherd boy, the eighth son of Jesse, the youngest, who uh, was kind of uh, overlooked in his own family. And yet uh, Samuel uh, comes to him and says that, that he's going to be the king of Israel someday. And, 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 and then he goes out uh, uh, unexpectedly and slays the great Goliath the giant, the Philistine. And then he goes on to become the king's armor bearer, which basically means he's the king's right-hand man. He goes where the king goes. He becomes familiar with the king's family. He becomes best friends with Jonathan, the prince, the great warrior. He eventually marries the beautiful Michael, the princess. I mean, it sounds about as fairy tale esque as you can get. But then he loses favor with the king and he's sent out into the wilderness and, and he has to live out in the wilderness with his, his soldiers, you know, the ultimate men's adventure. David out in the wilderness running from the king. Uh, and along the way, what does David do with his spare time? Well, of course, he, he frees some villages that are being attacked and persecuted. He rescues his parents from their doom, all the while refusing to go against the king who is trying to kill him because he is so dedicated to God's law and that for the time Saul is king and David will not strike against him. David is the ultimate man's man. I uh, heard a phrase once that made me laugh when I heard about David. It said that uh, uh, women wanted him and men wanted to be him. I mean, not only was he a great soldier who even at the age of 13 or 14 had killed Goliath, slayed the giant, he was a poet, right? I mean, he's the perfect, it's like James Taylor with muscles, you know? He was a poet, a songwriter, a harp player. He played for the king that said his voice was beautiful. And yet he was also this incredible athlete and this hero, and he had this incredible life. He became king uh, in Hebron, and then he reconquered Jerusalem and rebuilt it and made that the capital again. And he unified uh, Israel and he reigned for 40 years and he was always at war with his soldiers. I mean, this was the, David was the hero of the Old Testament, the prototype great hero of, of antiquity. And yet there is a moment in David's life that we're gonna look at right now that I think is one of the most interesting in his whole life. It comes from uh, uh, the book of, First Chronicles chapter 22. You're welcome to open your Bibles and go there. We're going to jump around in the text a lot today because we're covering like 20 chapters in Chronicles and 2 Samuel. So I'm going to bounce around a lot. Don't feel like you have to try to flip over every single time. But here's the scene. Now in the ancient world, a king was only as um, respected and valued as were his military prowess. 
So uh, a king isn't so much like uh, we think of a modern king, but in these ancient times, the king always went to war in the summertime or in the spring. And whenever the army went out, the king would go with him. The king was more than just a guy that sat on a throne. The king was the military leader. He, he led the army. Uh, he was the ultimate warrior in that culture. And that's what gave him part or most of his authority. And here's the scene in chapter 22 of First Chronicles. I think this is a turning point in the life of David that will inform the rest of our study today. Oh, excuse me. See, I'm already screwing up with the tablet here. I went way ahead. Apologies. Here's what happens. David is at war. This is 2 Samuel chapter 21. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Philistines were just David, his whole life, he was battling the Philistines. His whole life. There was again a battle between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And then a Philistine known as Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels. That's around eight pounds, around four kilos. And he was armed with a new sword, and he said that he would kill David. But Abshashan of Zeruah came to David's rescue. This is one of David's mighty men, one of his, his right-hand men, maybe his secret service, if you will. He came to David's rescue. And he struck the Philistine down, and he killed him. And then David's men swore to him. Listen to the beauty in this passage. David's men swore to him, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. Now, I don't know if you've ever known someone who has passed their prime. It's an expression we use in English that means someone is maybe just a, a step too slow. Or maybe they've lost a little bit of their old strength. Maybe you think of the great athlete who isn't as fast as they used to be or as strong as they used to be. Or maybe the Hollywood, beautiful Hollywood star who no longer gets the starring roles anymore because she's a little bit older, maybe just a little bit wrinkles here and there. If you believe that women get wrinkles, I don't personally believe that. But maybe you know of someone who is maybe not as uh, effective in their job as they once were, and that is a difficult place to be. And here we see David, the great hero king of Israel, unable to defend himself. I think in that moment, David looked death in the eye. And I think, I think that the warrior inside of him would not have chosen for one of his men to rescue him. My guess is that the warrior inside of him would have rather fought to the death and died in battle than to have been rescued by his men. But of course, his men loved him. If you read Samuel and Chronicles, you know that David's men loved him and they were not about to let the lamp of Israel to be extinguished. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at this scene? And so they rescue him. And so now David has a choice. He's come to the last chapter of his life, the last season he'll ever play for the team, Israel. What is he going to do with these last days of his life? Is he going to continue to try to go to battle and be the warrior that he once was? What does he do with his life? What do any of us do with the last chapter of our lives? I think God allowed David to survive that encounter so that he could use him for the final pieces of David's legacy. Now, if you're not familiar with the word legacy in English, legacy is 
what you leave behind, what you leave behind. It can be monetary if you leave a gift for your children or grandchildren, but usually legacy is used to talk about those intangible things that you leave behind for someone else. Maybe because you loved your children so well, they grew up to love their children and their children and their children, and you can have left a legacy of love. Or maybe you left a legacy of, of academic uh, excellence. You, you know, the, it's the, the two PhDs who have this brilliant child who has brilliant children, and they have built brilliant children, and it just goes on and on. Legacy is what we leave behind. Today, we are going to look at three episodes in the end days of David's life and the three different legacies that David left for the people of Israel and specifically for his son, Solomon, who would be the king that followed him. The legacies that David left, I believe, are these. He left a legacy of worship, showing Israel what it meant to worship God. He left a legacy of vision, what it meant to look beyond one's own life to a bigger picture. And he left a vision of how to invest in relationships with people. Then after that, we're going to flash forward to the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at the ways in which Jesus also left legacy for his disciples that also travel to us today, that pass on to us that we are still experiencing today. I have entitled today's sermon, Lessons in Legacy, and I hope that it will both um, encourage you and inspire you to consider not only the reality of your own mortality, but also the opportunity that you have to leave something behind that is bigger and more important than what your own life can uh, achieve, something that could be called a legacy. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for your servant David, and we ask that you would help us to learn from his life, follow his example, and to consider the opportunity we have as followers of you, as sons and daughters, to leave lasting legacies when our lamps have been extinguished. We ask for your help. Please be with me as I teach from your word. Amen. Three episodes from the end of David's life. The first one comes from 1 Chronicles 20 through, 22 through 26. And I'm calling this a legacy of vision. If you're taking notes in your study guides, I, this is where I said David has left Solomon a legacy of vision. You know, at the end of his life, one of David's greatest desires was to build a temple. He wanted to build a temple to God that would be uh, unrivaled in the world. It would be the greatest temple of any uh, uh, religious group in the world because it would be a temple for Yahweh. And David desired to do this so bad. He had so much enthusiasm. This would be his crowning achievement. You know, many of the great kings in the ancient world had these uh, accomplishments. If you think of the pyramids or uh, you think of the great temples that were built in the Far East and the Near East, David wanted to build a great temple. But God said no. He said this, the word of the Lord came to me. This is David speaking. You shall not build a house in my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days, and he shall build a house in my name. So God said, David, you, you have been a man of war and conquest, and you have satisfied so many things I've asked you to do, but the man that will build 
the temple will be your son because the temple will be built in peace. So what does David do? Does he fume with resentment and, and start building the temple anyway? No, what David does is he, in humility, acknowledges that God has not planned for him to build a temple, but he does everything he can to prepare Solomon's uh, building project. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a home improvement project at home, um, but one of the best things you can ever do for a home improvement project, this is a little tip my dad taught me, was that if you want to work on the project on Saturday, don't wait until Saturday to go get your supplies. Here's the problem, because on the way to the store, you're going to have to go to the grocery store, and then you're going to find out they don't open until 10. It's Denmark. They don't open until 11. Uh, and then you're going to be hungry. You're going to eat lunch. And by the time you get home with the supplies, it's one o'clock and the game's on. So you're just going to put it off until the next weekend. What you want to do to be successful in any home building project is you get the supplies on Friday and then you set them up downstairs, wherever you're going to work. So that as soon as you wake up and you've got coffee in hand, you can go right to work. Okay. That's just a little tip for me. Okay? David does this for Solomon. Listen to what it says. David gathered 3,750 tons of gold for the temple, 37,000 tons of silver, uncounted amounts of wood and stone and metals, and he assembled all the workmen that Solomon would need. He organizes the priests to pray over the temple, the musicians to play the music while people worked. And in fact, David actually gives Solomon the detailed blueprints for the structure of the temple that he will build um, and the drawings he will need to, to, to build it. And he says, David says, because the hand of the Lord was upon me, he gave me all the understanding and details I needed for the temple. I'm giving this to you. So David is basically saying, Solomon, you're young. You've never led armies. You've never led workmen. Here's how you do it. Take all of this, follow my instructions after I'm gone, and the Lord will bless the building of the temple. That is a great deal. If you've ever worked on a building project, the, the biggest confusion is between the architect and the builder when the builder doesn't know how to read the drawings. He doesn't know if this is supposed to be 30 centimeters, 30 inches, or 30 feet because the architect forgot to note that. And so that's why you get really strange problems when you build buildings. David is giving Solomon all the details he needs to build the temple. He's leaving him a legacy, a vision for how to continue on after his death. Now, this is significant in a lot of ways. One, because every boy wants to grow up with his dad teaching him how to build stuff, right? He doesn't want to be a grown man and not know how to use a hammer or a screwdriver or a Tomstock or whatever it is. David is literally saying, these are all the things you need, my son. You're going to want to keep this safe because when people come to ask you, you can point at the blueprint. He's enabling Solomon to be successful. If you've ever worked in a job where you're thrown into a project, and you don't know exactly what to do. And then when someone comes to check on you and say, why didn't you do it right? Why didn't you do it correctly? Well, I didn't have the instructions I need. It doesn't usually cut it as an excuse. This is David giving Solomon everything he needs to be successful. It's David leaving a legacy of vision. David didn't get to see the temple built. And it takes a lot of faith to entrust your dreams to someone else. But listen to this passage from 1 Chronicles. I think that David gives Solomon more than just the blueprints for the building. He actually gives him a legacy of vision on how to be a leader. Listen to this. This is from 1 Chronicles 28. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts 
and understands every plan and thought. And if you seek him, you will, he will find you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. So be strong and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Wow. Talk about encouraging and equipping the next generation. Not only does David give him the supplies, but he literally says, son, you can do it because God is with you. Do not give up. I think we can all relate to what that could give us. Someone took you aside and said, you can do it. I believe in you. God is with you. He will not leave you until the job is done. I can almost feel my chest inflating just hearing those words. It's powerful stuff. David gives us a valuable lesson in what it means to leave a legacy of vision. Secondly, David leaves Solomon a legacy of living worship, of living worship. Now, the first thing that you think of typically when you think of David is David and Goliath. The second thing that most people think of is the Psalms, right? David wrote a lot of the Psalms, the book of Psalms that we have now. These are the, the, the you, you hear these at weddings, you hear these at funerals, you hear these in uh, songs today, new songs. For 3,000 years, the poetic words of David, his poetic worship, has been used to help people, encourage them, and comfort them. Think about the words, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Powerful words of worship about who God is. But the second, um, sorry, but beyond the praise and meditative psalms, David also left a legacy of what it means to actively worship through tangible, meaningful um, actions, right? As Simon was talking earlier about how we have to work together to, to close the gap in the budget this year, that that's going to be something we have to do together. Well, there was another budget gap in the Old Testament, and it was the budget gap of how are we going to pay for this temple, Right? How are we going to pay for this temple? It's going to be the most expensive thing Israel has ever done, the biggest project they've ever done. Well, listen to what David did. He called all the leaders of Israel together. They were called the assembly. This would have been the chiefs of all the tribes and probably their firstborn sons and then all the priests and all the generals from the army. This is the, David's cabinet. These are the most important men in Israel. And listen to what he says to them. He says, on top of all of the supplies I've already purchased for the temple, this is what I've done. I have personally given 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the house of the Lord and for the work to be done by the craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. David has essentially thrown into the pot of everything they need to build the temple all of his own personal fortune. Because he realizes that Solomon can have the greatest architectural drawings, he can have the greatest craftsmen, but even in the ancient world, if they don't have money to pay for the building, it's going to stand there half finished. And that just won't do. So David says, I'm going to give all of this. But then he turns to the leaders of Israel and he says this, who then will willingly offer what they have, consecrating himself today to the Lord? So David stands and says, here's my example. I'm giving all this to help make this temple happen. What are you going to do? And I think what's significant about this is David doesn't ask of others what he isn't willing to do himself. How many people have worked on a team or in an office 
uh, or in a family where someone's always asking more and more of you, but they're not willing to actually uh, pitch in themselves. If you look at the greatest heroes and leaders, uh, men and women in the history of the world, and the people that followed them, they will always say the same thing. He or she never thought of themselves above us. They thought of themselves as one of us. And I see David doing that here. He probably had quite a lot of f- more fortune than the others, but he threw it all into the pot and he said, this is what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? And this is what they said. After David's example, the people gave likewise great gifts to build God's temple. They vowed to support young Solomon and follow his leadership. And David, in worship, says this. I think this is incredible. He says, praises, he's praising God for the gifts that the others have given. He says, who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer so much so willingly. For all things come from you, Lord, and of your own we have given back to you. For we are but strangers before you and sojourners, just as our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your own hand and is all your own. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all of these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here today offering freely and joyously to you. I love what he says here. He's saying, it's amazing to me that you allow us to give back to you. It's a gift for us to have the opportunity to give back. That's why at church every Sunday, we always say that giving is worship. It's not a duty that we have to do. We feel we have to do it grudgingly. We do it because we are able to do it, because we've been given so much. And I think David is saying that. And I think he was truly touched by how much his people gave. And I think he worshiped the Lord for that. There's a great quote that David says. It's not in this section. Uh, it's a little out of context, but I, I wanted to share it with you. Make a note in your margin. 2 Samuel 24, 24. David is trying to build an altar, and the man who owns the property wants to give it to the king and says, here, just king, just take it. You, you can build your altar here. Take my farm. You can have this land. And David says something really profound. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to, my, to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I won't, I won't sacrifice something that I got for free. It's challenging, isn't it? I think that David leaves us a legacy of worship by showing not only the giving of gifts to the Lord's house, but also by giving thanks when so many others followed his example. Thirdly, David leaves a legacy of relationship to Solomon. You can imagine what it would be like as a kid growing up in David's palace, right? And who are David's friends? Are they the stuffy-shirted administrators and bureaucrats that you see in, like, uh, you know, these movies about British kings from the 19th century, and there's, like, you know, Lord Johnson and Lord this and Lord this, and then they're just walking with clipboards, sign this, sire, and, you know. I mean, maybe there was some of that. I don't know. But David's friends were all like Hercules, right? The mighty men, they're walking around the palace with swords and shields and huge muscles, and they probably have awesome beards. And these are David's mighty men. They're, they are, Solomon is looking up to them his whole life. And he's saying, wow, my dad is so cool. He's like, you know, wow, it's amazing, right? 
And, and, and what does Solomon notice? Not just that these are great warriors, but he notices how much his dad invests in these relationships. David, throughout his whole life, was fierce. He was a great warrior. He was clever. He outsmarted many people, pretended to be insane to avoid capture. He was ambitious. He was vulnerable at times. He made mistakes. But he was never an anti-hero. He was never cold and aloof. He never kept people at a distance. In every chapter of his life, David is shown to us as having been passionate and compassionate in friendship, in his romantic life, in serving Saul as king, in dealing with his soldiers, and even with dealing with his enemies. And the result of this is that people loved David. They loved him. Think about the scene when he was battling the Philistine. You can almost imagine David standing there waiting for the final blow and his mighty man stepping in front of him with his, seer, his sword or his spear, and he's willing to die for his friend and his king. People love David. Um, I don't know if you remember this scene in 2 Samuel 23, but they're at at war again. They're always at war. And uh, David says, oh, it's harvest time, so it's kind of this time of year. And David says, oh, if only I could have a taste of water from the well back home. I don't know if there's an equivalent uh, for us today, but, you know, it's something like, oh, if only I could have some of my mom's, you know, homemade cider. I don't, I don't know. It's something from home. And his soldiers hear him, and what do his soldiers do? They love him so much, they actually run through the enemy lines all the way to David's town. And they take the water, and they pull it up, and I don't know what they carried it in, some kind of a wineskin. They run all the way back to the battlefront, going back through the enemy lines, and they bring it to David. And David says this. He takes it in his hand, and he says this. He says, I can't drink this. And he pours it out. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. It is not the blood of my men who went and risked their lives. And David would not drink it. I can only imagine how touched David was to see these three guys run all the way home and get him this thing he asked for. And how selfish it would have been for him to drink something that his soldiers couldn't have. Because they all had something they wanted back home. I've never been in the military, but I know that well, the greatest thing you can ever do for a serviceman or serviceman, send them mail, right? Mail from back home, emails, Skype messages, packages of cookies and brownies and whatever it is, fleskasai. I don't know what the Danish soldiers want, but you send it to them and it's like the greatest thing, right? Right? Am I right, soldiers in the room? Having that, that thing from home, and, and, and David's soldiers wanted to give that to him, but because he couldn't give it to them, he wouldn't enjoy it himself. I can only imagine how that honored them and how even though it seemed a little shocking that he poured it out, I think they understood why. And the key verse here, 2 Samuel 23, 4. David says this about what it means to rule over other people. He says, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. This was David's guiding leadership principle. Rule with righteousness. At the end of uh, Chronicles and Samuel, they basically tell the same story of the death of David, but they do it in two different ways, and I'm going to paraphrase both. First of all, in 
1 Chronicles 29, uh, as David is dying, he puts Solomon on the throne, his son, and he tells everyone, this is my son who's the king now. He's the king. I'm not the king anymore. He's your leader, which must have just been the most powerful thing for Solomon to experience. His dad saying, you're the king now. Soldiers, generals, follow him. Priests, he's the king. What an amazing legacy uh, to leave in relationship. And then secondly, the end of 2 Samuel is one of the oddest ends of the books of the Bible. Because you're reading about the life of David, and he's coming to the end of his life, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of 2 Samuel 23, there's this long section about soldiers. And you're like, what is going on here? This should be where it says the end, or David died, the end, right? But then it goes on through this whole list of all these guys' names who you can't pronounce, talking about the mighty men of David. And it goes through all these great warriors and all their feats and who they killed and whose son they were and how many sons they had and all these things that the mighty men of David did. And then it ends. And you're like, this is so strange. It's like an index of heroes just kind of was tacked on at the end of the Bible, but I, or at the end of the book. But I think what it's showing is that David had invested so much in his soldiers and his mighty men that the most important thing that Samuel could say at the end of the book of 2 Samuel was look at the great legacy of men that David influenced. Now I want you to think about your own life. Think about your tombstone. How amazing would it be if on your tombstone it said your name and then a list of 33 people whose lives were changed forever because of you? because of your love, because of your friendship, because, of you, because you were a great mom, because you were a great teacher, because you were so compassionate in caring for the needs of others that you wanted their names on your tombstone. You didn't want a long description of you, but a description of the people whose lives you had changed. I think that's what Second Samuel at the end is all about. There's a lot of confusion about maybe why it's there and was it, a, you know, but I think that's why it is. I think it's showing David's influence. He left a legacy of relationship. Now, flash forward to the life of Jesus. Now, there's a, a question that comes up a lot is that, you know, I think Eric preached a few weeks ago and mentioned that, you know, Nathan told David that his family would be, uh, have an eternal reign, that there would forever be a descendant of David on the throne. Well, something happens uh, after the life of Solomon, and we'll continue to look at this in the coming weeks, where the, the line of kings from David ends. But God told Nathan it would never end. And it's like, wh what's going on? This is, the, this is where if it's a trilogy of movies, the mo second movie stops. And you're like, wait, what? It's supposed to last forever. And it doesn't. And what happens is there's this gap for hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden in Bethlehem, a long time later, there's this baby born named Jesus who's not going to be an earthly king, but it's going to become the king of kings. And I don't know if you know this or not, but both Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus, are directly descended from King David's family, which is why they had to go to Bethlehem at Christmas time to register for the census because they were from the family of David, which was the city of David. And we always read that in the Christmas story, but the uh, important thing to remember is that even if Jesus had been a human and not had been a supernatural child of God, he would also have been in line for the throne of David. He fulfills the prophecy that Nathan promised 
through David, there would always be a king uh, in Israel, and that was Jesus. But let's quickly, quickly look at the way that Jesus also left legacy in his own life. I'm going to work backwards from relationship, worship, and vision. First of all, Jesus left a great legacy of relationships. Fishermen and taxmen, prostitutes and priests, children and centurions, the lame, the blind, the bleeding, the dying. Jesus' life was people-centric. In the synagogue, he quoted the prophet Isaiah and said this about himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. From the time Jesus started his ministry at around the age 30 to the time he was crucified, and even afterward, he was all about people and relationships. Now, you may be an introvert by nature. You may not be someone who enjoys spending every waking moment with other people. And I, I understand that. I'm not that way. Uh, but I think that we can see in David's life and we can see in Jesus' life and we can see in the apostles' life is that if we are not about the business of loving people, then we're missing part of what God wants us to, to, to experience as humans. We see it in the life of David. We see it in the life of Jesus. We see it in Peter and Paul, the disciples. Uh, everywhere you look in the New Testament, people are going to be with people. It's part of the legacy that we leave behind. Secondly, Christ also left a legacy of worship. He said this to the woman at the well, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, David and Solomon built a, a temple for worshipers to come into. Jesus did the reverse. He came to earth to become the temple by which we could enter into the presence of God from anywhere, from India, from Africa, from Australia, from North America, from South America, from 1000 AD to 2000 AD to 2015, Denmark. Jesus opened the door for us to enter into the presence of God by becoming for us the prophet, the priest, and the king that we needed. So no matter where you live or when you live, you have access to God in spirit and in truth. That was his legacy of worship. That's why you can travel to Copenhagen and worship the Lord, and on your way home, you can still be traveling and worshiping the Lord. And when you get home and have a ham sandwich, you can still be worshiping the Lord because you worship in spirit and in truth. Not in a temple made of stones, but in spirit and in truth. Lastly, Jesus left a legacy of vision to the disciples, which comes to us today. He said this, some of the most visionary words that have ever been shared in the history of the world. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe the Bible is the word of God or not, you cannot argue with the fact that this theological idea, this command to the disciples has changed the history of the world when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. No other words in the history of the world have mobilized so many people to do so much in such a short amount of time and has spread so far. The Great Commission was the match that lit the movement of Christianity 
that spurned the Western world into the end of the Roman age and the medieval times and the Renaissance and the, you know, the age of empires and, and the age we're in today. That idea that there's something that God puts inside each of you that is worth sharing and giving away, the legacy of relationship, vision, and worship kind of combines in the Great Commission, doesn't it? Because it's all about God's vision. It's all about worshiping Him by obeying Him, and it's all about being with others and sharing the light that you have with them. I hope that looking at these sections of David's uh, last chapter of his life give you a picture of what the last chapter of any life can be about. I saw a beautiful photograph. I wish I had it to show you. Uh, Some friends of mine, in fact, the people who first invited me to come to Denmark in 2006, posted a a photo on Facebook recently that really almost made me tear up. That's okay, because it's my phone. The photograph was two very elderly man and woman sitting in two chairs. They were holding hands. You could tell they were probably in their 80s or 90s. And surrounding this elderly couple were 60 children, grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. And they had huddled around grandma and grandpa, right? And the caption to the photo was, what an incredible legacy you have left us. Now, I don't know if every person in that photograph is walking with the Lord or has a a relationship with Christ or is is pursuing the Great Commission or is living uh, to the utmost of their potential. But I saw that photo and I thought to myself, what an amazing illustration of legacy. Think of the legacy that David left for Solomon and for the people of Israel. Now, whether or not they were obedient, David did what he was called to do. Think of the legacy that Jesus left us. And I ask you to ask yourself the question, are you leaving a godly legacy? Are you working towards a legacy of godly vision, of authentic worship, and of intentional relationships? I think the way we address these questions not only affects our lives today, but the generations that follow us, children, grandchildren, employees, colleagues, friends, and neighbors. You see, we too, like David, will become exhausted someday. And younger men and women will be asked to fight our battles for us. Our sons and daughters will have to complete the work that we were only able to start. And someday, our earthly flame, our earthly lamp will be extinguished. But the greatest thing that we can do with our time on earth is to leave a legacy for the future citizen of the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.